following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Why are you here today? Okay, you guys just passed an incredible test. Well done. Normal human behavior is not to be silent. You guys did a great job. Uh, I, I just waited 15 seconds. I counted out down in my head to see if anyone said anything. And you said nothing. That was amazing. Uh, two weeks ago, I was in Dallas uh, training for, for uh, my job at LifeNet as an auditor. And, and maybe some of you don't know, I have a different job that I do daily. And after you hear me this morning, you'll realize that it's more probable that I do have another job. Um, but I was down in, in Dallas training um, as, as, an, as an auditor, and our, uh, our instructor talked about the 15-second rule. And our instructor, who, by the way, was 80 years old, complete with pacemaker, uh, brand new um, hip replacement. And the year before he started to teach this class again, he had just beat can- pancreatic cancer. So this guy, was, his name was Hank. He was kind of, I think he was like an older version of Chuck Norris. So um, he's like Hank Norris or something, I don't know. Hank told us about this, this, this thing where we, we were interviewing someone and you ask a question and say, let's say you don't really get the answer you want to, you're kind of like, hmm, and you wait 15 seconds. And the human, human brain cannot stand it. Now, you guys did a great job, I have to say. You guys would be great auditees. You'd just be like, mm-hmm. You know, usually people are like, uh... I'll tell you more, you know, and they, and they spit out more stuff that they shouldn't say. So you guys did a great job. So back to my actual question, why are you here? Why are we here this morning? Um, after a start like that, some of you are probably thinking, why are you here? Um, but I, I want us to think this through here. Why are you, me, anyone that's connected this morning together in this place here at Cornerstone Bible Church? Specifically, why are we here right now? Um, we put on clean clothes. We get up relatively early in the morning so that we can, well, for a weekend. Um, we put cute kids, cute clothes in on kids. Um, we even make like crock pot dinners that are going to, at six in the morning so that by the time we get home, they'll be ready for us. We are somewhat, somehow committed to this event right now, what we're doing. You can always tell because if, now, you look around next week during our song time when we start, like we start morning worship together, maybe half of you aren't even in here. So we're, we're committed, but it finally gets in here. And then by this time, when we're ready for the, for the time to sit down and listen and, and hear the preaching of the word, we're here. We're committed to this time. If you're going to come, you're usually coming at least for this part. Why? And many of you may have a really good biblical reason. You've thought this through, and it's, it's really good. Um, some of you may not have good reasons. Some of you may be here because your wife made you come here. Some of you may be here because you think it's the right thing to do. It's something you've always done. So that's what you want to do. Uh, some of you may be here because, uh, enduring this sermon, because you think it's the best place to bring your kids, because if you do, they'll somehow turn out good. Um, some of you might be here because you want to get some little more learning on, on, on scriptures and, and have some good biblical tidbits so you can go back and have better biblical arguments with coworkers, our friends, our family. 
Um, whatever you are here for, for this time, we are here for a specific reason. And I want to tell you why you should be here this morning, why we should be here the next day, why we should listen and sit at the feet of Jesus Christ and listen. We come together and we're committed in this way because something very important, not trivial, happens right now. We as God's people set aside as a church this time to come together in obedience to Jesus Christ to worship our Savior and King. And specifically right now in this situation right here, we're here to listen to the preaching of the word. And yes, I mean it in both senses, the little W word and the big W word. I'm talking about the, the Bible, God's word, specifically communicated in scripture through men. But I'm also talking about the word, the best revelation and communication that God has ever given to humanity. Jesus Christ himself. We are here this morning to listen to the truth. The world will tell you all kinds of stuff. This morning we come back to hear the truth and to listen to what Jesus has to say. Not what Chris has to say, not what Stacy has to say or Jared or anyone who ends up being up here. We want to hear what the Bible has to say to us this morning and we want to respond because we know that we need it. It is Jesus who we came here to hear this morning. If you're new to Cornerstone, we're preaching through the book of Mark. If you're not actually new to Cornerstone, you might forget that we're in the book of Mark. Um, we're not here to be better scholars. We're not here to impress anyone. We're here to hear from Mark specifically about Jesus today. Uh, so let's dive right in. We are going to read the first eight chapters of Mark. Um, so Pietro, if you could come up and... Um... Sorry. We were all beginning to think that Jared had his like own personal Vanna White, you know, <laughs> and that uh, I'm not saying anything about either of their looks. Uh, if you have your Bibles in front of you, if you're reading the ones in front of you, it's going to be on page 844 on the Bibles underneath the seats. If you don't have one, please grab that, follow along. I'm not making this stuff up. It's pretty cool. Chapter 8, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they're like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he, was, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him away to his home saying, do not enter the village. Let's pray. God, we take this event very seriously. We recognize, Lord, that on our own, as Caleb read this morning, the wisdom of men will lead us to death and destruction and ultimately to a foolish ending where we have no meaning in life. We will end up destroyed, unhappy, and unfulfilled and against God. This morning we come to you asking that you would teach us your truth, that you would pound into our hearts, that you would cut, that you would do surgery, that you would make us more like Christ this morning because we look at your word and see that you are the Christ. God, I ask that you would help us to be clear, that we would understand, that we would pursue this. And God, we ask for your work in our hearts today, though. That's, the, that's 
what we can ask from you because we know that we can try and we can study and we can read and we can listen to podcasts and we can come to church a lot. But God, we need you to do the work in our hearts. So I ask this morning that you would be here with us, working on us, make it clear. May you speak from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're finally back to Mark. It's been like since last year that we were here. Uh, December 21st actually was the last day we've been here. So it's February now. It's been a while. Um, Jared has taken us through Hebrews to help us fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, and, uh, and the answer for every need that we even possibly could have. So thank you, Jared, for taking us through and preaching Christ to us. That's what we need. Um, today we're going to try to get back and come back into Mark. Stacy left off at eight, chapter 8, verse 21. We're going to go into the next part here. But... Um, like any time you'd return to watching one of your favorite shows on uh, Netflix or Hulu or something like this, um, you've got to get reacquainted with where we're at here, especially if you haven't watched a show for like two months. You know what I'm talking about. You know, you're like, oh, who is this character? Oh, I remember him. Oh, yeah, I got to go back. So you start maybe and you go back and rewatch like parts of an episode or something like that. And, uh, you know, you don't need to do that for the Super Bowl usually. Like any old dummy cannot watch any of sports at all and like, Super Bowl party, I'm there, you know, and enjoy it. And they'll watch the Super Bowl and they'll enjoy it. It's like, it's an entertainment. It's, it's good. It's fun. It's good to be together. Well, yeah, Tom Brady, who's he? All I know is his balls are deflated and stuff. So, um, shouldn't have said that actually. Uh, that was not script. I'm so sorry. I, that, is, that is not what I'm here to do. Yeah, Pietro, could you come back up here? Uh, talk about going off an illustration you shouldn't have. The Super Bowl is something you can watch and not worry about having to understand the rest of it. Whereas if you watch a regular modern TV show, you're going to have to find out somewhere where they were to get to the place where you're at, because usually they're sequential. Some will have, like, an episode here, episode there that are, that are, you know, independent, but often you need to follow that down the road. So, um, like, for instance, uh, well, I read an article in, in Newsweek, that, or Newsday, excuse me, I thought would be appropriate here and uh, that you'd appreciate. The article said that as people were preparing for the Super Bowl Sunday, 69% of fans would rather watch at home with family and friends than in person. I found that a little surprising. Only 23% would prefer to see it in the flesh. And if you do the math correctly, uh, the other percent, 8% would presumably rather watch Downton Abbey. Um, so this brings me to Downton Abbey. One of my favorite things that I know about that Downton Abbey does is they, 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 they start and they say, and I think in a voice that's somewhat like Susan Sarandon previously on Downton Abbey, and they give you like the last pertinent scenes to help you get to the place where you're at. They try to make sure that you can get up to speed so that you know that this person did what and this person did that. And so that by the time you're ready to start the episode, you understand what you're watching and why you're watching it. Well, maybe not why you're watching, but at least you understand what's going on. Um, so, and like that, just letting you know, you've come today to watch Mark 8. This is season 8, episode 22 through 26. That's what you chose this morning, all right? That's what you're getting. Um, but like the creators of Downton, it, it's, it's really on me to help us understand and bring back the pertinent scenes from the past eight chapters and bring us up to speed to where we even are and what we're doing here in Mark 8, 22. It could be very, if, if you have no idea about Mark 8 or Mark at all, 
the, the passage we read just seems like another miracle that Jesus did. And if it's that, then we could say a few things about it and be done and be very easy. But it comes with a huge background. So what we're going to do today is go through that background a little bit. Mark 1, verse 1, is the title of the whole book. And verse 2 through 13 is a prologue. If you're not familiar with like a prologue, the idea is like an introduction. And what it's doing is giving you a little theological commentary on what the rest of the book is going to be like. Not necessarily giving you the points. What it's doing is it's validifying. It's capturing and saying, this is what's happening. And so much so that it's actually, like I said, a theological commentary. It's stating back, it's bringing some bigger themes into it that gives it some validity that this is something that's real. It's not just one of God's other prophets. That's not what he's trying to do here. He's telling the story of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This is authenticated by, like, the, the, the speech in the first couple of verses bring up the Holy Spirit and what he is doing and his authenticating power and presence in Jesus' ministry. That's very important. It, it, it helps to bring some solidity, if you will, or some, so, some very helpful explanation say, okay, the next scenes that are uh, 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 to come are real. It gives you a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look. So that's the beginning. After we get into the rest, there's two main directions that we go, and I'll get to that in a second. We start, into, we start to see that, as Stacy's pointed out, that we, we see that you know, after the prologue, we see that Mark presents him as the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. He presents him as the King. And now as we're getting into eight and further on, we start to see that he's the Messiah. He's the Christ, the Savior. So let me kind of walk back through that a little bit with you. We see Jesus' ministry in Galilee. That's another thing. I talked about location. From the beginning of his ministry, or when Mark picks up, until 821, Jesus is ministering people in Galilee. We've heard the language over and over again, the Pharisees and the crowds and going to this place and going to that place. He's ministering in kind of his home city there-ish, around that area. When he gets to this point, he starts to turn a little bit. He starts to turn into a different geographical area, which is going to be Jerusalem. What's happening in Jerusalem? Eventually, the Passion death of Jesus Christ. That's where we're heading. And as serious as that statement was, was as serious as how Jesus kind of begins to turn his teaching and his demeanor as we start going down this path. We're going to see things be different from well, the first half of the book. He's going and telling them stuff that they haven't heard yet, so much so that they will be surprised by it. Whereas the, what is he, he's been teaching like crazy in the first half. But there is a, a distinct change here. Not away from that as if it was wrong. That stuff is all still right. But he's teaching them more now. And he's going in a direction towards Jerusalem, towards his death and crucifixion. So, some things uh, that we see here, I just want to bring up a couple things. Remember we talk about that he is one with authority. Do you remember that word? Like Stacy went over and over. It keeps, we keep finding it all over the place. Mark says, and, and the people were amazed. He was one with authority. Not like the, Jew, like the scribes. He was different. This man is so different. He's, he's not like any other man. He's not like a good teacher or a, a prophet. He is, he is starting to look like he might be the son of God. This is very different from any other man, any other of God's prophets. Um, there are four things, four things that I want to talk about when he deals with the Pharisees. He deals with the Pharisees in a couple of ways. But one of them, you remember this. He's in a room. He's in a house. And... The house is full of people, and a paralytic comes to him, and they can't get in the house. There's too many people. They can't get through the door. 
So what do they do? They go up on top of the house. They're so ambitious that they tear up all the shingles, if you will, in our day and age, and all the subroofing, all that stuff. Back then it's like clay and sticks and mud, and they're ripping it apart. So much so that they can fit this paralytic man down there, like on his cot. Like I present, I think about like a, a bad uh, like angel rendition, like they lower him down on the stage. But like the, like the, he's getting lowered into this room. He sits there in front of Jesus, and what is Jesus' response? Look at this guy's faith. This is amazing. I, I haven't seen stuff like this. What do you say to him? Does he heal him first? No. This is crazy. The Pharisees are all sitting there. The scribes are sitting there. Jesus says, son, your sins be forgiven you. And what do the Pharisees say in their hearts? No one can do that. Only God can forgive sins. Who does this guy think he is? And knowing that, Jesus says, what, you don't think I can forgive sins? Is it easier for me to say this or for him to get up and walk? So that you'll know that I'm telling the truth. Get up and walk. And he walks. He's confronted them in this healing. The second one we see is Jesus explains why he and his disciples aren't fasting. Do you remember this? When they come and ask him, why do your disciples not fast? Like, that's a good spiritual discipline. Why don't you guys do that? His basic answer is, because I'm here. Uh, They don't need to. The third thing, he's picking grain on the Sabbath. Remember that? He's going through the fields, he's picking grain, and they're eating it. They're doing work on the Sabbath. And they start to dispute him again and start asking him questions. And you can't work on the Sabbath. Who do you think you are? He refers back to David. He talks about a couple other things. And then he declares himself to be, this is bold, the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm in charge here. I'm God. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Last one that's really, he faces off with the Pharisees early on is when he's in the synagogue or the temple and he's, and he's, he's, and he's with people and he's, the man with the withered hand sits there. And the, and the disciple, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the Pharisees wait and they watch and they want to see if Jesus will heal on the Sabbath. Because naturally, healing someone is unlawful on the Sabbath. And this is eventually the point that Jesus is going to make. No, it's not. And he goes against exactly what they think is the right, according to their traditions, and he declares that he himself is the Lord, showing that he's the Son of God. There's nobody else like him. Who can do this but God alone? And specifically here, the Son of God. Move on. We've talked about that this is the Son of God, and Mark presents him as the Son of God. He also presents him as the king. King over what? We went through three specific things. He is the king over chaos, king over evil, and king even over death. King over chaos. They're in the boat. The sea gets crazy. There's wind everywhere. There's huge waves. It's so scary that the fishermen who are on the boats all the time are scared to death and they cry out, Jesus, don't you care about us? We're going to die. And you are too. What's wrong with you? Save us. We're going to perish. What did Jesus say to the wind? Peace. Be still. In our vernacular, he probably was like, shut up. Stop. Get down, waves. I'm in charge here. And what does it do? It obeys him. As if it remembers when it was first created and God allowed things to be perfect and he put things in place the way they were supposed to be. The wind and waves obey him. He's the king over chaos. Next, he's the king over this evil. They go ashore. They meet this demon-possessed man. Everyone knows who he is. 
He's the guy who cuts himself with stones. He's the guy that they've tried to bind with chains, and he breaks them. Who breaks chains? Like, like this guy is just crazy. He lives amongst the tombs. He is a, he's not just crazy. He's demon-possessed. And when Jesus confronts him, he says, who are you? And you remember they talk about, I am legion, for we are many, talking about the demons that are in this man. Jesus shows great power, and he shows them who is the king. He is the king. He sends them out, and they are no longer there. They are in these pigs, and they run into the, into the, into the, uh, into the water. And what happens to the man? His life is completely changed because Jesus is king over evil. Mark shows us that he's the king even over death. The uh, ruler of the synagogue, his name is Jairus. Do you remember this story? Jairus comes to talk to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, will you please come? Would you please heal my daughter? She's at the point of death. Would you come? So their, their group comes, and they start to go that way. And along the way, what happens? Someone grabs his, his cloak or his robe. This lady with this issue of blood, knowing that she's been to several doctors over and over and been met with nothing but failure, and she is going to die also. And Jesus says, who touched me? And you know how the story goes. Your faith would heal you. And this woman was healed so that she might have life again. But let's get back to the story for a minute. They turn back and they start walking again. And a man of Jairus's, one of his servants per se, comes and says to him, don't bother the master anymore. Your daughter's dead. Leave her alone. Can you imagine as a father feeling that way? But then Jesus says to you, don't be afraid. Only believe. Trust me. They walk to the house. They're confronted with another group. These wailers, the weepers, and the people that are sad. And, and he says, why are, you, why are you crying? She's just asleep. And they laugh at him. Who do you think you are? And then he shows them who he is. And he raises her from the dead. He has victory over death itself. This is the person we're talking about. Jesus is presenting someone who is the king over evil, over chaos, even over death. This is Jesus. Jesus has wrestled with the Pharisees. He's preached, he's teached, or taught, sorry. Uh, I always thought that preached should also be past tense prot. You know what I mean? Like, why don't we say that? Anyway. Um, so he, he's, he preaches to them, he teaches to them, and then what happens? He's continually rejected. The crowds, by the way, good guys or bad guys? Usually bad. At the best, they're neutral. These are not good guys. The crowds continually come back asking questions, wanting to see this, wanting to see that, and they don't believe. Uh, later on in Mark, we're going to start to realize through his parables and as he teaches that his kingdom is different from what they think it's going to be. They're looking for someone to come in as a war commander, overthrow Rome, establish what they want, and to set it up that way. That's what they want. That's what they're looking for. Jesus is coming to do something completely different, and he hasn't let this out of the bag yet, and he will after this, this specific story that we're getting to, that he's here to do something different. He's here to create peace with God for all men, and he's going to do it through his actions. That's the kingdom that he's all about. Not about the temporary kingdom that would overthrow a, if I can say it, a wimpy king of Rome. I understand that we think he's something, but for Jesus, who cares? 
His kingdom is so much bigger and so much greater, and it will be like that mustard seed. It starts like this, but grows out so large that things make their nests in its branches. That's the kingdom that we're talking about that God is, that Jesus is starting to talk about and starting to teach. Um, he even has a foreshadowing of that kingdom. I, lo- I was blown away by this when Stacy took us through this, of the feeding of the 5,000 and the likeness that it brings to Psalm 23, and that this is a foreshadowing of what the kingdom will be like as people are brought. Remember, remember he talks about shepherding them, and uh, you, know, you know, the shepherd psalm as it brings them along. He had compassion on these peoples as if they were sheep. He sits them all down by what? The cool waters, by the ocean. He sits them down and groups them in pairs, and he feeds them all. Miraculously, yeah, but he feeds his people. He provides for them. He loves them. This kingdom is so different. He doesn't provide us a picture of some sort of a spiritual raid on Rome or, or anything like that. He's teaching his kingdom. Jesus walks on water. He heals the sick. He even opens the ears of the deaf people, which, by the way, is a huge allusion to the fact that we ought to be hearers. Remember, he keeps saying, he has eyes to see, let him see. He has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen to me, listen. It's really important, guys, listen. Now, we're getting close. Chapter 8. Jesus has compassion on another crowd. He's about to feed another 4,000 people this time. They go through the rigors. They know what's going to happen, right? Like, uh, you think as a disciple, they're like, well, uh, you did 5,000. 4,000 is all you could do. You know, couldn't you up it a little bit? But, but th- that's not true. Look at verse 4, all right? Eight, 8 verse 4, what does it say? And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Jesus, how can we do this? Because he tells them before, he's like, let's feed these people. And he's like, we can't do it. So the, I, I, I don't, I, I want, want to be careful for us that we never think that we're better than these people, but it's amazing that they didn't remember that he just did 5,000 people. And now they're at 4,000 people and he's like, and they're like, what are we going to do? I don't know. Someone, this is really scary. We've got we to gotta figure this out. And Jesus, again, lovingly, like a shepherd, brings them along and says, I will feed them. And he does. He blesses it and gives to these people. And what's left over? Lots of baskets of fish and bread. Um, if you're at Long John Silver's, like breaded fish, that would be good too, you know. Within this story, Mark is going to move us along. And some kind of a little literary technique is used here. Do you remember this? It's, a, it's where you insert a story into the larger story that helps shed light on the whole thing. Does anyone remember the name for this? Yeah, very good. Intercalation or... Uh, that, that's, that's the idea. Is that this is, this is going to give special significance to the whole. He's meeting with these Pharisees. They do not believe. They asked Jesus not for a miracle, but for a what? A sign. And Stacy talked about this. He, they're talking about an apocalyptic sign, whereas he would break through the skies and shatter things, and his kingdom would come at that point. Basically, they want what they want. They don't want bread and fish. They don't want to see someone's guy's arm healed. They're like, we want the kingdom now. That's what we're here for, and we want you to do it for us now. So Jesus says, I can't believe this. You, your generation, you won't get a sign. It's not for you. You will not get a sign. Walks away. Back onto the boat and back into the bigger story. So we're back on the boat, right? 
uh, the disciples all realize that they have only brought one loaf of bread. How do you feed 13 grown men with one loaf of bread? Now, we're not talking like a Sam's Club loaf of bread, all right? We're talking like probably small loaves of bread. Remember, a boy had a, like five loaves and two fishes for his whole lunch. So these are probably not that big of loaves. That's a problem. But again, they're talking about this and they're working back and forth. And, and, they, and, they, uh, and Jesus, apparently rowing in the front, he, uh, he looks back over his shoulder and is like, beware of eleven of the Pharisees and beware of eleven of Herod. Turns back and he keeps rowing. I don't know if he's rowing, but I'm just making that up. He turns back. That's the idea, though. Just get this with me. So the disciples look back at each other. Is he talking to us? And they go back to discussing bread again. Uh, naturally, if Jesus says that, they don't get it. They don't get what Jesus is trying to tell them. He's trying to say something. So they go back to discussing bread. This time, Jesus rowing, hears them talking about it, throws his paddles in the water, turns back, and he's like, Listen. You're not getting it. He has some very specific things. He says, don't you understand? He says, you have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you understand? Why aren't you getting this? I just fed 9,000 people. At both situations, there were leftovers. One loaf of bread, 13 guys. I, we have way better chances here. <laughs> We can do this. But he's pointing something bigger. They don't get it. Verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him on his way home, saying, do not enter this village, enter the village. What in the world is Mark doing? What is he doing here? Did he mistake? Did he make a mistake here? Did he forget to finish the last story? Um, did he jump into a completely different story? Like, what is he doing? Um, or is Mark using this story, this healing, to teach us something very specific, something different, something bigger than what is immediately happening here? Not just for the blind man, but for the disciples. The healing account is pretty normal, but there are two distinguishing characteristics that make this stand out from many of the rest of them. After doing the work, Jesus asks him, did it work? And then uh, the second thing that's characteristic is, nope, <laughs> not fully. It kind of did. It did work a little bit, but not, not fully. Like, men as trees walking is a nice way to say it's a little blurry. I didn't wear my contacts. You know, he's not quite there. He doesn't get it. He, doesn't, he can't see it exactly. So this is weird. Why? What's this about? And why would he ask these things? And why would it take like a two-stage process? Is Jesus not powerful enough to do it? That's silly. Does he not know what's going on? Like, why would he ask? No, that's silly. He knows. And he's far more powerful. And he knows what to do. And he knows what's going on. So why would Jesus do this? Why would he do it this way? 
That's the most important thing we can take from this lesson, to try to understand that. Obviously not. Jesus knows the people, what they're thinking, and he's already demonstrated his healing power over and over again. But consider a couple things. Consider the blindness of the disciples. The spiritual blindness, the lack of understanding. Verse 18 says this, having eyes, do you not see? Mark isn't using words here flippantly. He is dragging us back so that we could see what's going on here. If you go back to chapter 6, verse 52, he says, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Chapter 7, verse 18, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see? Then consider another thing. Consider what, what happens next. And Stacy went over this a little bit, and if you're not familiar with the story, I'm going to give you, it's, it's kind of a little of a spoiler, but we have to talk about it next week. Next thing that's going to happen is the confession of, of Peter. He is going to confess that Jesus is not only a prophet, that he's not only a good man, but he is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. He gets it. He gets it, right? He starts to understand. But uh, consider another thing. After we talk about that story, we're going to move on. And Jesus is going to start talking about the fact that he has to go to the cross, the way of suffering, that he will die and he will rise again. Peter, the guy who just confessed Christ, is going to come along and say, hey, Jesus, come here for a minute. you got to cut that out, man. No, no, no. You know, and he starts rebuking him. What did Jesus say? Like, I can just see like, the interaction. He pushes him off. He's like, yo, get behind me, Satan. You can't do that. You're wrong. You're not getting it. You don't understand, Peter. He calls him Satan. I've never really called anyone Satan, but Jesus can. He's allowed. He's helping you understand that you're missing the point completely, Peter. You said that I'm the Christ, but you're missing the rest of who I am. Think of our story. He does know. He's getting it, right? But maybe he's seeing them as trees walking, not clearly yet. And we know as he walks this way that Jesus is, and, and they get closer to the cross. And then even at the cross, they don't understand. Peter denies him, bringing shame to himself in the name of Christ by such, a, such an act. That we, re, we remember, we all remember that Peter denied Jesus Christ. He's not, he's not there yet. He doesn't get it all the way. But then as we moved into the book of Acts and future Peter is one of the foundational pieces in what God decided to do to start the church of Christ. He's faithful and walks and makes mistakes along the way, but guess what? God continues to use him and continues to work with him and continues to make him more like himself. So here we are. We talked at the beginning. We know why we're here. We have come together to hear the truth. The truth that sin is terrible and we choose it. The truth that God, in his love, has sent Jesus Christ to be our Savior, the one who can beat it. He can beat all these different things. He beat death. He beat hell. He triumphed over the grave. We come to hear that he is able to not only beat sin and death, but that he is sweeter to us and stronger and more loving than any of the things that are around us in our world today. He can offer forgiveness and he can actually cleanse our hearts from our rebellious love of this world and ourselves, we've rebelled against him. He's bigger than that.
And he can do that. He can and he will transform us to be more like him. He promises to. Look at this. Look at what we're talking about today. Look at the disciples as they're with him. They're nonstop with Jesus. Why aren't they getting it? They're not getting it. We need him so bad. This is what we need. We want him to change us. And that's why you're here this morning. Not to hear Chris. You're here to hear Jesus. Because you need him. Man, so do I. We need to be changed by him. That he would change everything about us. And I'm just letting you know, it's not going to change overnight. We're going we're gonna to try and we're going to work at it. And we're going to read our Bibles and then we're going to get selfish and we're going to sin and we're going to get angry and we're going to get lustful and we're going to get proud. And then again, we're going to know the truth of the gospel and the Spirit's going to work in our hearts and he starts pulling us back and we say, God, help me. And he continues to work in us because of our faithfulness, right? That sounds so foolish. No, because he is faithful. He promises to do these things. Let us come back again and again and again to hear the word so that we might also have our eyes open. Let's pray. God, we need you. We love you and we know that you are a great God and we need your help. So we ask today that you would forgive us and help us to know you and trust you. Please change us, God. Open our eyes in Jesus' name. Amen.